Rochelle Shong, recording from my basement in Louisville. And I'm Beth Bennett, recording in my pillow fort in Boulder, as we are staying at home. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 19th, 2020. Coming up, an interview with Byron Kamenick from Jack Solar Garden, located outside of Niwot. Jack Solar Garden is putting in place an agrivoltaic system this summer. Agrivoltaics combines agriculture and solar panels, photovoltaics. There are mutual benefits to locating these together that we will learn about. Careful listeners will note that we had originally scheduled an interview with Detlev Helmig, an associate research professor at the Institute of Alpine and Arctic Research. Professor Helmig was conducting air quality measurements at Boulder Reservoir and analyzing how oil gas industry emissions impact our air quality. Professor Helmig was abruptly fired from the university in April, prompting several organizations to weigh in. His case is making its way through the legal system, so he is not able to sit down with us at this time. But when the dust settles, we do hope to still interview him. Interested parties should listen to the May 8th KGNU interview by Maeve Conrad with Joe Salazar, who is representing Professor Helmig. In the meantime, we are very fortunate to feature Byron Kamenick from Jack Solar Garden in today's episode. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Wearing masks. Last week, Boulder County approved an order calling for everyone over the age of 12 to wear a face covering in public when social distancing of six feet isn't possible. Does it make sense to wear masks in public? The CDC reversed their position on masks. Now they are recommending wearing cloth face coverings in public settings where social distancing measures are difficult to maintain, for example, in grocery stores and pharmacies, especially in areas that have significant community-based transmission. There's been a fair amount of investigation into the scientific rationale for wearing masks to prevent the transmission of the coronavirus. First, we'll talk about what the mask prevents from entering or exiting, And second, I'll talk about the most common types of masks. And last, I'll tell you a little bit about how the science assessing mask efficacy is done. Uh, Yes, pray tell, what does fly out of our mouths and noses that we need to be protected from? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, we've all been sprayed by people talking or laughing enthusiastically. Yeah, and I have to confess I'm a sprayer. You're a sprayer, and... I back off when people start spraying me, especially now. Um, And many of us have seen these kind of horrifying videos of coughs and sneezes, spraying respiratory droplets, AKA snot, for astoundingly large distances. If you haven't seen these and you want to see them, I'll provide a link to them in the show notes on our website. So this stuff, AKA ejecta in the scientific jargon, ranges in size from visible droplets, the stuff you can see in other words, to microscopic particles called aerosols. This encompasses a huge range of droplet sizes. The larger droplets that you can see are heavy and they actually fall out of the air pretty fast. The aerosols on the other hand contain very little moisture which evaporates rapidly. And then because they're so light, 
they can stay suspended in the air for a long time, and I'm talking days. Now, the big droplets can contain millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of virus particles. Aerosols, being smaller, carry several orders of magnitude fewer. Now, breathing, especially nose breathing, releases many fewer small droplets that move more slowly. And importantly, because breaths are not the forceful exhalations that coughs and sneezes are, viral particles from the lower respiratory tract where the coronavirus hangs out are not expelled. Okay, so we talk about, you talk about big droplets containing millions and millions of virus particles, and then aerosols carry uh, several orders of magnitude fewer. But how many vir virus particles does it take to infect someone? Is it hundreds, thousands, millions? That seems like a big money question. Yeah, it, is, it is a great question. And for the new virus, we don't know how much of the virus you have to take in to get sick. And for one thing, it probably varies between people. Susceptible people, it probably takes fewer. But for other coronaviruses and for the flu virus, it's been pretty well determined. It can be as few as 100 virus particles. And you could get that number in just one breath if an infected person coughs near you or in 10 of your breaths if you're further away, or even in wiping your eyes or your face a few times if you've been touching infected surfaces. So if someone is infected with coronavirus, they can release potentially infective viral particles, which are carried out in these droplets and aerosols. If you're coughing and sneezing and you're infected, you can be spewing out a lot of virus. But if you're asymptomatic, then by definition, you aren't releasing these massive amounts. So to get infected by breathing air, as opposed to touching a contaminated surface and then touching your face, it seems like it's the distance from the person we need to worry about as well as the aerosols because they stick around for so much longer. Yeah, the aerosols do persist and they can eventually land on surfaces as well as stay in the air. Thus, we have the importance of hand washing. So aerosols are a big concern for transmission because they are kind of silent and deadly. We know that aerosol levels are higher indoors, especially where sick people have been, and they can persist for a while. This is less true outdoors where factors like wind and temperature will disperse and destroy the virus much more rapidly. So where exactly are you most likely to be exposed to the virus? This is a really important question. In one study that was done in Wuhan, China during the initial outbreak, the virus levels in aerosols were measured in three different places. First, rooms in two different hospitals that had COVID patients. In other words, the patients were in the rooms where they were testing. Second, they went to rooms where only medical personnel were involved. In other words, no infected patients were there. And then finally, they went to what they called public access areas, which included parks and shopping areas. Huh, so how, how do you collect virus particles anyway? Yeah, there's a couple different methods. And first, they used an air pump to collect air from these rooms that they were testing, and they forced it onto a gooey filter that trapped the virus. Then they looked at how many virus particles were deposited out of the air. To do this, they put pieces of that gooey filter down on the floors and the ground, and they collected the aerosol for seven days. So remember that the aerosols eventually do fall out of the air. And in a nutshell, they found that airborne virus levels were pretty low in most environments. Inside many of the infected patient rooms, in fact, there was actually no virus collected on the filters. And that means that the hospitals were um, successfully decontaminating the environment. 
But in other rooms, they found that suspended aerosols were present, suggesting that the infection can move via aerosols. The filters on the floors also showed virus, meaning that it could be possible to pick up virus by touching surfaces that had been contaminated by aerosols. Interestingly, they found the highest virus levels in areas where only medical staff worked. Oh, really? That is surprising. Yeah, exactly. The scientists speculated that this occurred in areas where the protective garments called PPE were removed. And then finally, in open areas like parks where people were spread out, they found no virus at all. In fact, the only outdoor area where any virus was detected was the entrance to a shopping mall and the hospital entrance. So, okay, so this one study tells us that uh, indoor air is far more dangerous in some some situations than outdoor air. That's yeah, fair. yeah, but keep in mind, this is one study and results should be replicated by independent groups. And also keep in mind that this study, like many others, is just identifying the presence of the genetic material of the virus. That's like using footprints to tell you whether someone has been in the area. It's circumstantial. What is more useful is knowing if the virus detected can actually infect you. This is a totally different type of experiment, and it involves infecting cells in the lab with virus and then waiting between three and seven days to see if infection occurs. So if the virus remains on a surface after a period of time, it will still be present, but it lacks the ability to infect us. So have some of the more rigorous studies been done for COVID-19 that could tell the difference? Yeah, there are some preliminary studies on the infectivity of the new coronavirus that need replication. However, there are a lot of studies from the past decade on the older coronavirus and the flu virus. And these earlier studies show that aerosols can transmit disease and that the likelihood of getting sick is directly proportional to the number of viral particles you're exposed to. And this conclusion does support the use of a face covering in areas where the viral load is high. So have scientists done studies putting masks on sick people and seeing how that affects disease transmission? Yeah, this has been done with the seasonal flu, but like I said before, um, we're still in the early stages of experimentation with the coronavirus, so it hasn't been done with the new virus. And with flu, the results are mixed and probably due to different types of masks and, of course, differing compliance in different people. So let's go back to that Boulder County order calling for face coverings. There are a lot of variations. A surgical mask is a loose-fitting disposable device that creates a physical barrier between the mouth and nose of the wearer and potential contaminants in the immediate environment. These are often called face masks, although not all face masks are regulated as surgical masks. And note that the edges of the mask are not designed to form a seal around the nose and mouth. So while a surgical mask may be effective in blocking splashes and large particle droplets, a face mask by design doesn't filter or block really small particles in the air that may be transmitted by cough sneezes or even by medical procedures like intubations. The loose fit also allows potential contaminants to pass through. Bandanas or nylon sleeves covering the mouth and nose provide even less protection. Yeah. An N95 respirator is a respiratory protective desi device designed to achieve a very close facial fit and very efficient filtration of airborne particles. The N95 designation means that when it's carefully tested and fit, the respirator blocks at least 95% of the really small, less than one micron, and these are really tiny particles. If properly fitted, the filtration capabilities of the N95 far exceed those of face masks. And if you wanna see photos of the different types of masks, I'll also post a link to them on the website with the show notes. Have there been any studies on using masks with this new virus though? 
Yes, but again, because it's such a new virus, the results are limited. One study that was done in China during the epidemic found that N95 masks almost completely blocked aerosol virus entry. The surgical masks blocked about 97% of virus aerosols, and they used a homemade mask that consisted of one layer of cotton with four layers of paper inside, but they didn't describe exactly what those paper layers were. Like, were they paper towels or were they HEPA filters? They didn't exactly say. But anyway, this homemade mask prevented about 95% of virus from getting through. All those are pretty good, but they compared them to one layer of polyester. That's your t-shirt mask. So the, the polyester mask basically blocked nothing compared to those other masks that they tested. Yeah, I imagine. So it, so it does sound like surgical masks as well as the N95 masks offer good protection. That's a reasonable conclusion based on the limited data. But there's another reason for wearing masks other than science, and that is the fear and anxiety we're all experiencing during this pandemic. By wearing a mask when others are around, we communicate respect and empathy for their concerns and our shared risk. Well, it seems like this is true in crowded areas. It does put my mind at ease to know that someone having enough respect to wear a mask is unlikely to sneeze and cough all over me. Yeah. <laughs> So bottom line, the N95 and surgical masks provide protection, and the cloth mask provides some protection, but maybe just psychological. Yes, and as we all know, what we believe does matter a lot. If you're just tuning in, this is KG on You, How on Earth Science Show. We are speaking with Byron Kamenick, who is the owner of Jack Solar Garden outside of Niwot. Jack Solar Garden, in partnership with NREL, CSU, University of Arizona and Audubon Rockies is building a 1.2 megawatt community solar garden, which will be the largest agrivoltaic system of its kind in Colorado. Agrivoltaics is when you co-locate agriculture with solar panels, and this is when things get really interesting. So welcome to the show, Byron Kamenick. Thanks. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah. So what is exactly is agrivoltaics, and how does that differ from a conventional solar garden? Sure. Isn't agrivoltaics a fun word? It's like usually <laughs> whenever I talk about that with folks, it's, it's the first time they've ever heard about it, and they kind of mark that down as their word of the day. I like the word, and this is a science show, so it's agrivoltaics. Yeah, there we go. So agrivoltaics is uh, a meld of agriculture and photovoltaics, smash them together, agrivoltaics. Agrivoltaics has been around, I think the word was coined sometime during the 80s, and there's been uh, numerous different sites around the world that have worked on agrivoltaics to vary, varying degrees. Agrivoltaics is basically trying to grow crops underneath and around solar panels uh, or other types of vegetation, pollinator habitat, potentially cash crops, and uh, your cucumbers and peppers. University of Arizona, for instance, they they released a study, oh, about a year ago, where they found that they could grow twice as many tomatoes per plant using half as much water. They could grow jalapeno peppers about the same amount per plant using a third of the amount of water. Wow. And then something called Chiltepin peppers that uh, I think they go for like $80 a pound in some places. Uh, they could grow three times as many peppers using the same amount of water underneath the solar panels. And it's all because the solar panels create a microclimate underneath of it that enables uh, more moisture to be 
stored in the ground for crops to get a hold of and also helps to moderate the temperatures. So are there advantages to the solar panels by in, in reverse that uh, being co-located with the agriculture? Right. So the National Renewable Energy Laboratory and University of Arizona came out last year telling us that as uh, plants transpire, they create a humidity. And then during the middle of the summer, when the plants are growing and the panels are roasting on top, the, the humidity underneath the solar panels helps to cool the panels over time. And so then you can actually, as you cool the panels, that increases the efficiency of the electricity transfer. And so you can get a little bit more power per panel by, by simply growing vegetation underneath and around the solar panels. This can lead to, I, I think NREL pulled me up to 3%, percent extra power production so somewhere it's just a few percentage points but on a large scale a few percentage points and provide more power to additional homes that's interesting yeah i guess the ideal climate for solar panels is sunny but not too hot because then the efficiency goes down but then the the perfect climate for agrivoltaics is where you have an arid climate like we have here where we need more water in our soils for plants and that there's plenty of sun out there for the solar panels. And so then it makes agrivoltaics work much better in a location like the Front Range of Colorado. So you've attracted a lot of uh, partners. You have NREL, CSU, University of Arizona, Audubon Rockies, and others. Uh, who are the other partners that are really interested in, in this project? I'll, I'll start with Audubon Rockies. They've helped us establish their largest habitat hero around the perimeter of where our solar array will be built this summer. So they've they put in around 2,000 plants, various types of perennials and small trees that will that have gone in that cover about an acre of land around the perimeter of our solar array. So they did fundraising for that and hired folks to come out and take care of that. So that's been awesome of Audubon Rockies to do. We're also partnering with Sprout City Farms out of Denver. They, they're a nonprofit that takes, from my understanding, degraded lands and turns it into vegetable gardens. And so they want to work with us on teaching young farmers how to do agrivoltaics on our property so that they can internship for a couple of years and then maybe go out to other solar arrays in the area so that they can apply their trade elsewhere. So a means of creating a new vocation. You mentioned University of Arizona, NREL, and Colorado State University. Those folks are partnering with us to study different types of vegetation that will grow underneath the panel. So some of them want to try different types of grasses. They want to try some vegetable crops, perennials, and then potentially even some cash crops. And they also want to try different means of irrigation underneath the panels. And finally, I'll say um, Applewood Seed Company helped to donate some wildflower seeds to us that have been helpful that the Audubon Society paid to have sprayed out on our, out on our land. So thanks to those folks too for making that donation. That's great. So for, for people that are interested in subscribing to solar panels, because there are a lot of people who are in businesses who, who want to get solar panels, and being able to subscribe to a solar garden is very, or for an agrivoltaic system is attractive because then they don't have the burden of putting them on their roof or maybe the roof isn't well situated or any number of reasons. So who are, who are you looking to or who would be the ideal subscriber for Jack Solar Garden? Right now, we're, we're looking for larger companies or uh, larger institutions that have a, a high electricity demand between 250,000 kilowatt hours a year up to a million. Become a subscriber to us, and then uh, we can we can have a partnership where 
they're able to pay us on a monthly basis for that amount of power that they subscribe to. And then also we'd be able to have opportunities for them to bring out their staff, have events out on our farm on an annual basis. And uh, since we're putting in a solar array, it'll be out here for 20, 20 years. So that partnership will last a long time. So how does Jack Solar Garden fit in with the Boulder Energy Utility that is coming online? So you're located outside of Niwot, but as, as Boulder begins to own its own transmission lines, having purchased them from Excel, is this going to include Jack's Solar Garden? And how does that work with any subscribers that might be in Boulder or outside of Boulder? Sure. So uh, Jack's Solar Garden is in unincorporated Boulder County. So the municipalization of the city of Boulder's electricity grid that's only in the city of Boulder. So we're, we are well uh, outside of the city limits. Uh, so that doesn't have any impact on Jack Solar Garden as far as us operating and putting our power back into Excel Energy as uh, we're a participant in Excel Energy Solar Rewards Community Program. For subscribers that are in the city of Boulder to Jack Solar Garden, my, my understanding from the city of Boulder is that there'll be no complications. They, they plan to continue to honor subscriptions to various community solar gardens it's not just jack solar garden that's operating with uh, subscribers in the city of boulder but there's there's various other uh, community solar gardens already with subscribers there so they my understanding is the city of boulder intends to continue to honor those those subscriptions okay so just backing up though what was your eureka moment what what made you realize that that your farm was ideal for for turning for for solar panels, what was your eureka moment that you realized that? And what is it about your your farm or your grandfather's farm that made it ideal for this? I, I guess it makes it ideal is that uh, the land is already within our family, so that that made it much much easier for us. So we didn't have to go out and buy somebody else's land. So we my my grandfather bought our land in 1972. He used to have a farm of a uh, hundred plus acres down in Broomfield that he had for. I think more than 40 years where my mom grew up. So he moved up here to retire um, in his 80s. And uh, the farm has been in our family since. We have 24 acres of land. It's over three different pastures. And Jack Solar Garden will go on one of those pastures and it'll be about five acres of solar panels. I moved out to our farm in 2016 after, I, I, I our previous life was in international development. I'd spent a number of years in different parts of Africa with my last last career as being a diplomat um, in Mozambique. And I moved back here in 2016 to see what else we could do with our land and just started going through various options of, should we be chicken farmers? Should we be tree farmers? Do we, should we get a bunch of horses out here and have an equestrian center? And none of that really sounded overly appealing to our family until one of my friends that's in the solar industry said, you know, you should look into community solar. And so we started doing more research on the Excel Community Solar Program, did a, a, an analysis of how much power we thought that, or how much sunlight comes down on our field on an annual basis, and slowly learned, you know what, this, this might work, especially with us having a three-phase line, uh, Excel Energy's three-phase line on our property, which helps to make the cost of interconnection cheaper. So through 2017, 2018, I worked with Excel Energy, learned more about their project, uh, their community solar, uh, solar rewards community program, and then I applied to it. And it was the first time we applied to it. We didn't really expect to win, and we did uh, in the December of 2018. So uh, that really kickstarted us into 
oh man, we got we got to get this business going then. You know, even before that, I would say we we were uncertain that we could do community solar on our property because in 2017 and 2018, it was still illegal to do a solar array on farmland in Boulder County. We worked with Boulder County over the course of that over the course of that year plus, where they they looked at what it would be like of having solar arrays on farmland, and they we we went through a land use code change process with them where they did a lot of research. They had a, a lot of great folks working on that on their staff and the county commissioners voted to allow for farms like, like uh, Jack Solar Garden to, to exist where we can co-locate agriculture with solar arrays. And so now it's not just our land, but dozens and dozens of other farms across Boulder County could do the same thing as we are. Oh, that's great. And what, so when did it, what, the land use code changed in 2018 or 20 or 2017 or 2018 they started looking into changing it in 2017 okay so is i guess we'll find out more because this is all going to we'll learn a lot more from research really what what you were all doing for research so but if there if there were going to be more higher value crops that could be a possibility with the shading provided by the solar panels what are what are the guesses that farmers are making would would be a higher value crop that that could be allowed by these having solar panels? Uh, off the top of my head, I, I mentioned tiltspin peppers, which are one of the more expensive peppers that are out there. There, one of the professors from Colorado State University is interested in trying to trellis grapes, wine grapes, underneath the solar panels, just to see if that microclimate is conducive enough for them to grow. Oh. Um, Potentially for different types of botanicals, for perennial, uh, different types of perennials uh, that will enjoy having more moisture in the soil over time, but also don't mind not being watered on a daily basis. So there'd be a potential for various perennials or, or botanicals to be able to be planted underneath the panel. So it's, there's a lot of questions out there as to what will work better. And also, I can't remember if I mentioned we're, we're planning to elevate our panels at two different heights. So we'll we'll have a single axis tracking system that a little over half of our array will be at six feet high and then the other portion will be at eight feet high. And this will allow the researchers to study the different microclimates created underneath those, underneath those solar panels just to see what type of difference there is and potentially what crops grow better underneath them. So the solar panels can move, can, it can rotate with the sun. Is, it, is this on an east yeah. axis? So. East-west access only. Okay. And then uh, what, so how, how large is each solar, just so we can imagine this, how large is each solar panel? And then they're six or eight feet off. And what can you fit underneath them for equipment and or between them? <laughs> sure. So each panel is uh, roughly uh, six feet long by three feet wide. And then on one tracker, you'll have a panel on either side. So the, the, there'll be spacing underneath the panels enough for people to walk underneath the panels to be able to grow crops underneath them and then the spacing in between the rows will be enough so that when the panels are completely flat where there's the least amount of space in between the rows of panels there'll still be about 11 feet of space where we could still drive a small tractor in between the rows of panels for when we uh, prepare the land at the after after the installation of the solar array so we're with the single axis tracking that allows for there to be a higher side and a lower side at different times of day. So people would be able to work on one side and then work on the other side. And then we'll also be able to drive uh, small vehicles 
uh, in between the rows. Great. So if people want, would like to learn more and or visit in or see your farm, what do we do in this COVID era? <laughs> Can we drive by? Can oh. we drive by and look and hang out the window and look? Can we totally? <laughs> so we're, we're we're at eighty one oh two North ninety fifth Street. I think over nine thousand cars drive by our farm on a day to day basis pre COVID nineteen. Folks can drive by and see what we have going on. And over time, if you're driving on North 95th Street, you'll see Namaste Solar out there constructing the solar array starting in June and with uh, the completion set for September. Folks can go to www.jacksolargarden.com, J-A-C-K-S-S-O-L-A-R garden.com to learn a little bit more information about what we have going on. There's a nice video on there. If people want to volunteer to help us out with our pollinator habitat of just doing mulching and weeding. Folks can contact me, my email is online, and then we'll likely start up tours once the once the construction is complete and uh, likely have a agritourism business set up with, uh, with that. So our plan is to be able to bring out school kids for free to come out to visit the, the solar array and learn about it. And then we'll um, also have an opportunity for community members to come out for tours as well. That sounds great. I'd love to go to a tour sometime. So. Okay, well, thank you very, thank you so much for speaking with us. Good luck to you. Thank you very much. You have a good one. That was Byron Kamenick from Jack Solar Garden. You can find out more information and visit their website at jacksolargarden.com. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show is produced by Angel Shang and engineered by Maeve Conrad. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Beatles. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to see those additional pieces of information or links, go to that website. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Angel Shaw.